Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? Consider the Global X Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at globalxetfs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. Built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. Hello and welcome to The Rest is Politics with me, Alistair Campbell. And me, Rory Stewart. As we said last week, The Rest is Politics election tour pre-sale is now live for members of The Rest is Politics Plus for 48 hours. And as members will have read in yesterday's email, it went on sale at 8am GMT this morning, Wednesday. Exactly, Alistair. The link and pre-sale code have been distributed to members via email. The pre-sale will close at 9am on Friday the 16th of February, ahead of the general sale to the public, which is going to run from 10 o'clock on Friday. So book quickly. So a few tour de- details. We will be kicking off in Brighton, Sunday, October the 6th. We'll then go for a further six shows in Birmingham, Manchester, Glasgow, Cardiff, to all those who say we never go to Wales, before closing terrifyingly at the O2 Arena in London on Tuesday, the 15th October. Actually, this London performance, the O2, is set to be quite something. Our show is going to be hosted in the round, a bit like a boxing bout, Alistair. Uh, Mm -hmm. Or or, or, or like that play Cabaret, I try and make you go and see. I will, I will, I will. It's the first time the O2 will have hosted a live podcast on stage. Excellent. Tickets are limited to six people per transaction. I assume that's to stop all the touts, Rory. If you're late to the party, you can still sign up to the pre-sale by becoming a member by going to therestispolitics.com. You'll receive the link, pre-sale code in your welcome email. And if previous shows are anything to go by, tickets will sell quickly. And if you don't manage to get tickets in the pre-sale, you have another chance in the general sale, which opens 10 a.m. Friday, 16th February. We'll tweet a link the minute it goes live. Now, Rory, I know you're very excited to be going to perform in Wales for the first time, but also, did you know the venue in Glasgow is called the Armadillo? Yeah, Armadillo. I'm getting getting my scales on. I'm all ready to be reptilianly defended against any attacks. Okay, well, listen, let's get on with today. And there's not that much going on domestically. There's this labour chaos in Rochdale. 
There's Rishi Sunak. I didn't watch it. I couldn't bear to watch his uh, GB News thing. So I think we should have a a very kind of a broad focus today. I think we should talk about Trump and Biden. There's two incredibly big, important elections, one that's already happened in Pakistan and one that is about to happen in Indonesia, the third biggest democracy in the world. Um, So we should talk about those. So does that sound okay with you, kick off with America? Absolutely. And I guess there, there are lots of news coming out of America, but one of the first things is this whole question which we're going to keep coming back to about people's comments on Biden's competence. And it may be very, very unfair. I mean, many of my, you know, my my in-laws who I keep quoting on the show keep saying Biden is fine and this is just a Republican attack line. But there is absolutely no doubt that this is going to be central to the election. So over to you. Well, I guess this the reason this became so kind of big again in the American media and around the world, because this is such an important election for the world, was because of this inquiry by a guy called Robert Hur. Now, I this troubles me that when he was doing his report, all the American news media was saying, you know, the well-known Republican lawyer. And it is a problem, this, that we, we do have this sense now of this political polarization in the American legal system. But this was an investigation into... Biden having kept classified documents after he stopped being vice president. Now, the prosecutor, this guy, her, he said there were no criminal charges to bring. Clearly, Biden had taken documents that he shouldn't, but there were no criminal charges to bring. But he came up with these absolutely devastating, it reminded me of the Comey report on Hillary Clinton, just devastating comments about Biden's inability to remember things. He said that uh, he wasn't bringing a case because he thought that Biden would probably persuade a jury that he was an elderly, an elderly man who couldn't remember anything, which if you're the president going for your second term is devastating, said that he couldn't remember when he was vice president, which I frankly just don't believe, couldn't remember when his son had been killed. And that yeah. really did seem to get to Biden. It's extraordinary that, isn't it? Just just some of the, the quotes. You know, Mr. Biden's recorded conversations in 2017 are often painfully slow with Mr. Biden struggling to remember events, straining at times to read and relay his own notebook entries. In his interview with our office, Mr. Biden's memory was worse, so that's six years later. Did not remember when he was vice president, forgetting on the first day of the interview when his term ended, and forgetting on the second day of the interview when his term began. And I mean, interesting for people like me who are sort of obsessive watchers of US policy on Afghanistan, he got very confused about his view on Afghanistan in 2009 and his relationship to General Eikenbury. Eikenbury was the yeah. American general who became the ambassador and who, like Biden, was very skeptical about the surge and was in favor mm. of more of a light footprint in Afghanistan. But it, he says his memory appeared hazy when describing the Afghanistan debate that was once so important to him, amongst other things. He mistakenly said he had a real difference of opinion with General Carl Eikenbury, when in fact Eikenbury was an ally, and Mr. Biden cited approvingly in his Thanksgiving memo to President Obama. Now, the the, the defense, I guess, mounted by, I, I, I'm sorry to keep putting Shoshana's parents into this, but I think they will be representative of many, many loyal Democrats, is to say, yes, his memory may be going, and older people struggle to remember things, and that's normal, but that's not the same in any way as saying he's senile, and that he's still able to make decisions well. The performance, the economy, implies that he's presiding well over the United States, and that if he was genuinely suffering from some kind of dementia, you'd have many more people from his administration resigning and breaking away and complaining about it, 
Mm. which isn't happening. So I guess the defense says, yes, he's old and old people's memory goes, but that isn't the same as him being unfit to be president. Yeah. And I suppose part of the defense as well is that this did seem to be a very, very political act. I don't think there's it getting away from that. You get the feeling that this guy, her, couldn't nail him for having broken any laws that justified bringing criminal charges and all the complexities that would bring with a serving president, but at the same time felt he had to land a few blows. And these were devastating blows, sufficient for Biden to feel he had to go out and address the media and address the country. And of course, wasn't helped by the fact that having already mixed up Mitterrand and Macron, he then mixed up Sisi, the ruler of Egypt, with the president of Mexico. So these kind of little missteps. And and by the way, Joe Biden is quite famous for his gaffes through his entire career. Yeah. And I don't know if you saw, Rory, I sent you a picture of yesterday was the 49th anniversary of Margaret Thatcher becoming leader of the Conservative Party. And there was a picture of Margaret Thatcher in her first year as opposition leader almost half a century ago with the then Delaware Senator Joe Biden. So experience he most certainly has, but he's always kind of made these gaps. But I think your point about the economy is interesting as well, because the economy, if you look at the numbers, is doing well. You know, you've got disposable personal income, unlike here, for example, in the UK, rising. You've got real GDP up 2.5%. And you know, he does have very good economic numbers. And yet, a poll the other day gave Trump a double-digit lead on the economy. So it's almost as if the sense of what the what is actually happening in the country related to what's happening politically, there's a disconnect which he's not, at the moment, able to, to fix. Yeah. So th- this is an interesting thing. I mean, th- this great line, which we keep coming back to, it's the economy, stupid. And often... When journalists cover this, or when I guess commentators cover this, they look at big macroeconomic figures. So when they're looking at the US, you know, growth has been very strong in the US, 2.6%, you know, compared to hovering around zero for Germany, Britain, and a lot of European countries. The stock market's been performing well, and wages in the US have gone up above inflation, and inflation is now coming steeply down in the US compared to the UK again, which is really struggling to get on top of inflation. So mm-hmm. The assumption is you look at those big top-line economic figures, and that should mean that he should have an easy run into the election. But the reason I've always been a bit skeptical about this is I'm never sure how much top-line figures produced by economists really translate into how people actually feel in their pockets. And and to try to illustrate that, maybe I'm getting this wrong, but I guess if you're on a low income in the US or, or in Britain or anywhere, you almost certainly have a lot of debt. You're almost certainly struggling to afford housing. Housing's much more expensive in the US to where it was. Mm. Your uh, petrol bill is up. Food bills are up. And even if your salary has gone up a little above inflation, you are still very, very anxious. It's a sort of marginal change. It's not exactly as though these macroeconomic figures mean you're suddenly dancing in the streets and are desperate to vote for someone. But anyway, over to you on that. Well, no, no, that is true. But my God, Rishi Sunak what he wouldn't give for the numbers that the Americans have right now. Look, Joe Biden is hes clearly not stepping down. That seems pretty clear to me. There was a real rallying around of him. Kamala Harris went out to speak in his defense and say how well she thought he was doing. Senior Democrats went out. Very significantly, I think his wife, Jill, went out, did an interview, spoke publicly. He doesn't do that that often. 
said that, you know, he's vigorous and he's fit and, and all this stuff. But you're right that this is going to become huge. And of course, if he was up against a reasonable, mild-mannered, fair sort of opponent, it would be, you know, probably you could get through it. With Trump, who's an absolute, as Robert Sapolsky in the absolutely wonderful episode of Leading This Week, Rory, and thank you for getting him on. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. But the whole, you know, Trump is the biggest baboon in the jungle, and he is going to hit every weak point of Biden that he can. And this, of course, you know, yes, we talk about Biden's age, but I do think in terms, of, certainly in terms of UK's relevance to this election and, and what we need to get out of this election. I do think the far more significant this thing this week was this stump speech that Trump gave. You know, he stands up at these big rallies and he just sort of blathers on. And you don't know. I mean, we go on about Biden's sort of mental capacity. Heaven knows what's going on inside yeah, Trump's yeah, head. Can I come in on that one quickly? Because yeah. I think that's, that's, of course, what Democrats are now saying. They're, they're saying, look, Biden may be a bit forgetful, but people are increasingly saying Trump is showing signs of actual proper dementia. I mean, they, they point to him doing an extraordinary speech where he keeps saying, you know, if the Democrats win, they're going to change the name of Pennsylvania. And he certainly seems to often speak as though he thinks Obama's still president and he confuses Nancy Pelosi and Nikki Haley. But, it, but it's more than that. Mm. Paul Krugman uses this word of kind of a word salad that really something very, very odd goes on in the neural networks of Donald Trump. But again, his defenders say, well, that's just Trump. He's always been a bit like that. Yeah. But, you know, two, two things this week. The first was you mentioned Nikki Haley. He said, you know, this is a guy, by the way, whose wife, Melania, nobody ever sees. Uh, and, and I think, who, who is we? we? We're talking on leading this week to Anthony Scaramucci, who was very briefly served as Trump's communications guy. And I've talked to him before and he said, you know, he, he was telling me about how much his wife hates Trump. And he's, he says, you know, my wife hates Trump almost as much as Melania does. Um, so, so, so like that's a given that Melania and Trump are not exactly the closest married couple in the world. And yet he decides to go out and make a thing of saying, where's Nikki Haley's husband? Why is Nikki Haley's husband not on the scene? And Nikki Haley's husband is serving abroad. He's a military guy who's serving abroad. So Joe Biden comes straight out and says, this guy wouldn't know service if it hit him in the face. But the other thing, I think the really significant intervention from Trump was this thing that he said about Russia and NATO. And this is back to his old thing, which he did when he was president. And it's fair enough to sort of call people out for not paying their dues into NATO. But he said this, you didn't pay. You're delinquent. No, I won't protect you. In fact, I would encourage them, the Russians, to do whatever they want. you got to pay. So this is an American president, America being the most powerful country within NATO, essentially saying to Vladimir Putin, just as he said to Vladimir Putin, I think it'd be great if you hacked Hillary Clinton's emails. He's basically saying, you know, if you want to invade Finland, you want to invade Latvia, you want to invade these little countries around the place, just go ahead and do it. Yeah, it, it's completely appalling because... I mean, firstly, because the words of an American president really matter. Mm. So small, small signals from the US led Saddam Hussein to feel that he could invade Kuwait. Small signals from the US encouraged Putin to believe it was okay to go into Crimea. This is not a small signal. Mm -hmm. This is a huge signal. And of course, the reality is that NATO countries will not meet the 2% before Trump is in office. So I, I think that's first thing. Secondly, a little bit of background just on where we are with NATO funding. So NATO is committed, all the countries in NATO, 
And just to remind people, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, set up after the Second World War, initially arranged around countries like uh, the UK, Canada, and the US and others, but increasingly encompassing most of the countries of Europe. And broadly speaking, NATO countries fall into a third who are paying more than 2%, a third who are on track to get there, and a third mm-hmm. who are nowhere near getting there. So the ones that are already there, UK up at 2.2%, places like Poland up in the high threes, even maybe low 4%, in a big expenditure, the Baltics, so the closer you are to Russia, the more you're spending on defense. And then countries like Spain, well, well below, Italy, well below. Yeah, Germany and France on track probably to get to 2%, which matters because they're enormous economies. The trend since Trump came in, actually, if you wanted to defend Trump for a second, whether to do with his pressure or whether just to do with the way that Russia's behaved, these countries have massively increased their spending since 2016. So I think there's an additional $350 billion of NATO expenditure compared to what it would have been if they hadn't increased. And Germany's increased to 2%. It's a big thing. I think Germany's in particular, though, was very much a response to, to Russia-Ukraine. That's when the big, the big hike came. But this is, you know, we've just had the election in Finland where, dare I say, Rory, my friend beat your friend. And that was not good. That was a depressing <laughs> thing, just as my friend was offering to come on the podcast. <laughs> well, we'll, get, we'll try and get the new president, Alexander Stubb, on, um, his former prime minister. And, but, you know, that debate about defense and relation, you know, how you deal with the threat from Russia was absolutely central to the campaign. And then literally in the week of that final week of voting, up pops Trump. I wouldn't even think about the consequences to these other countries. I very much doubt it. And of course, when we spoke to Guy Verhofstadt, the former Belgian prime minister on leading recently, he was making this point that, you know, Europe has to think more seriously now about its own defenses, because if Trump does win, Europe cannot rely on America in the same way as it can right now. And the problem is that it's got an unbelievable hill to climb. I mean, I I think it would be a mistake to think that even if these countries were spending 2%, they would be anywhere close to being able to deal with this. I mean, as I've pointed out, the US is producing 10 times as much support to Ukraine as any other single country. And it's not just the 2%, it's that the under-expenditure, this peace dividend since the end of the Cold War, has meant that capability is so eroded. Most of these countries haven't been doing proper training exercises. There's been a real lack of investment in basic stuff like ammunition. And, And then there's been this fact that really, since Iraq and Afghanistan, Insofar as countries have been doing anything, they've been doing fights against insurgent groups like the Taliban. Mm. And that's a very different type of fighting compared to fighting Russia. So they haven't been investing in tanks. They haven't been investing in artillery. They haven't been investing in these very complicated command and control things, which have become central in Ukraine. Mm. So really building up, I mean, even if they got to the 2%, really building up to be in a position to begin to defend themselves against Russia. And meanwhile, Rory, we've got this big NATO exercise that's uh, about to happen. UK, as you say, one of the few countries that is spending 2% plus. And yet, aircraft carrier one gets ground docked, can't go. Don't worry, says government. We've got another one. We can send that one. And now it turns out that one can't go either. And meanwhile, our defence secretary... Grant Shapps is writing articles for the Daily Express saying that he's going to wage war on woke inside the army. This is not a serious government. Yeah, I think the Britain situation is a really good way of looking at the problems that are going to face all the 
non-US NATO countries as they begin to build up. Because you're right, Britain's spending 2.2%. And when I was chair of defense committee, I was one of the people leading this campaign to get the 2%, which we got through. But of course, the actual debt of the military is unbelievable. They're tens of billions of pounds in the red. And they bought these very high status things like aircraft carriers. But of course, an aircraft carrier is a floating target unless you surround it with a lot of other ships that we can't afford and unless you pay for planes to go on it. So these things can take over 30 planes. We can't pay for the planes to go on the aircraft carrier. Mm. So, so the whole thing is, you know, d- that's just one example you've pointed to of problems right the way through the military. And to actually sort those problems out would probably cost, you know, tens of billions of pounds more a year. And the question is whether a Labour government's going to produce that. Probably not with all the other priorities they have on their table. Yeah, I do think, though, that defence and foreign policy should be playing a much bigger part in the national debate right now. You know, you and I did um, an event the other day for 1,400 people in the business world, and I did a couple of other events last week, and I've added to my... I seem to remember you did four in 24 hours. Yeah, but they weren't all... An evening event, morning, lunch, and evening. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but but some of of them were of a charitable nature, Rory. It wasn't just a sort of, you know, money-making venture. It's quite exhausting, yeah. yeah. But I've added, you know, my when I like to get show of hands, I've added one which is, do you think the world is more or less safe than it was 10 years ago? And it's like everybody is saying, 100% of people are saying the world is less safe. Now, that does mean you would think that we should be having a a more serious debate, which is right at the centre of political debate right now, about defence and security. And, you know, I don't think we're really having that debate. One small update for people, which is just sort of breaking news as we're recording the podcast, um, listeners will be very aware because we talked about it a lot that for months now the assistance package to Ukraine has been delayed uh, in the Senate, and there was a breakthrough Monday U.S. time, late Monday night U.S. time, where finally key senators, key Republican senators in particular, voted with the Democrats. Seventeen Republicans joined the Democrats to pass it by sixty-six thirty-three, which means that probably on Wednesday. Um, we will be in a situation where that bill finally goes through, which is a huge deal. That's $95 billion with $60 billion for Ukraine. And it's encouraging in a way because these are Republican senators breaking directly against Trump. I mean, Trump has basically given orders that this bill is to be stopped. Supporters of his have been out saying this is a deliberate attempt to undermine Trump by baking money into the system before Trump takes over. But most of the Republican leadership, Mitch McConnell, a lot of the armed services and veterans are remaining relatively traditional Republican and have voted with the Democrats to get this through. So that that will make a huge difference that Ukraine front. I mean, literally $60 billion worth of difference. And that, that coming a week after the European Union finally got its package through by putting Mr. Orban up against a wall and putting his arm up behind his back and saying, listen, sunshine, you've had your fun now, you're going to get, you know, you're not going to block this. So that is that is good news. Can I just on a sort of final thing, we, we talk about these events we do together. One of the questions we've been asking when we're doing live events, we'll do it again when people come and hear us in the O2 and elsewhere, is who thinks Trump's going to win and who thinks Biden's going to win. Yeah. Um, but I've been on an obsession since, I guess, the end of last year that we're going to end up with a president who's neither Trump or Biden. Mm. And structurally, we've talked about the problems with their aging and memories. We've got the legal challenges against Trump. I, I think there's an increasing chance, I don't know whether it's 30, 40% chance that we could end up with a president who's neither Trump or Biden. And I think we 
need to start discussing maybe in future podcasts who could be a democratic replacement for Biden, even though people think that's never going to happen, even though it seems mm -hmm. structurally almost impossible to bring in a replacement. Yeah. We should just say, by the way, that um, at that event that we did together and at the other events I did last week, there has been an absolutely massive shift towards people think that Trump is going to be the president. Now, I, I think it is not going to be Trump. That may be wishful thinking. But I do think, you know, you and I have argued about this for well over a year now. I thought the age thing would not become the issue that it is clearly becoming. I, th I saw a poll, an American poll the other day saying it's now, that, you know, it's the number one kind of uh, talking point in terms of, you know, what, when people talk about Biden, it's the first thing that they, that they talk about. There is sort of, <laughs> there is a kind of thing running that Michelle Obama is going to just sort of pop up at the last minute. And now I think that's highly unlikely. But yeah, you're probably right. We should talk about some of the others who, who may be involved. Maybe before we, we, we leave America, Rory, we should just point out that, um, Taylor Swift won the Super Bowl. Um, quite an amazing <laughs> achievement. She, I don't think she played exactly, but, and <laughs> so I can't remember who it was, but, my favorite tweet of the whole thing. Well, first of all, Andy Murray. Shout out to Andy Murray, the tennis player. He did say congratulations for Taylor Swift for winning the Super Bowl. But somebody else said, you know, great victory for the deep state. The deep state always wins in the and, end. What could just help me because I'm I'm missing this. My mother's now talking all the time about Taylor Swift. Why is the public suddenly more focused on Taylor Swift than ever before? Well, first of all, because she is a massive star. I don't know whether she's the biggest, but she's one of the biggest sort of musicians on the planet. She's got a massive following, very, very loyal following. They call Swifties, Rory. And the Republic, because she's pro-Biden, the Republicans have decided to go for her. She has this relationship. Her boyfriend is this guy, Travis Kelsey, who plays for the Kansas City Chiefs who won. And it was an amazing, I'm not a big NFL oh, that's fan. Right. And you told, us, you told us last week that the theory from the Republicans is it was all going to be rigged so that he could win. Correct. And, and, and adding fuel to that theory is the fact that they got a kick. They, they, they scored like with seconds to go in, in the game. So it went into what's called overtime and they won in overtime. So an incredibly kind of dramatic win. Cameras all around Taylor Swift the whole time. And then the sort of big hugging and kissing with the boyfriend. Since when Trump has come out himself, <laughs> attacking Taylor Swift because he says that the changes that he made to music legislation when he was president is what's made her rich and famous. I mean, as you know, nothing can happen <laughs> in the world. But, uh, so, so I think we should, I, I've become a huge fan of Taylor Swift just for the fact that she so clearly gets under the skin of Trump and all his supporters. Very good. Okay. Now the final, final thing you brought to our attention before we go to the break is the fact that the UK is an outlier in the number of younger people who are voting uh, Labour and against the Conservatives. Now, th that wouldn't normally be surprising. I mean, normally we expect younger people to be more left-wing. But actually in many countries, as you've pointed out, strangely, younger people, and particularly young men, are often actually quite conservative and are voting for populist right-wing parties. Yeah. But in the UK, that doesn't seem to be true. Over to you on some of the reasons why that might not be true in the UK. Well, I don't know about the reasons, but this guy, John Byrne Murdoch, who if people don't follow him, they should, because he's very good at sort of drilling down on, on data. And essentially what it's showing is that I think it's fair to say that the young are pretty much giving up on the conservatives. Whereas in other countries, as you say, there is still this sort of propensity to believe that, well, maybe conservatism, strong leadership, all the sort of patriotic stuff that the right 
tries to take for itself. Do you think there's also possibly an incumbency thing, which is that young people often around the world are pretty angry about their economic prospects, pretty angry about the way the world's going. So if you've got a a left-wing government in, they will gravitate towards the right. And if you've got a right-wing government in, they'll gravitate against. Yeah, possibly. But the thing that's happening here, if you look at the numbers and the graphs, the thing that really seems to be driving this is the fact that the, the young generation in our country, and there's plenty of evidence why they should feel this, feel that there's been a kind of effective breakdown of upward social mobility. And a lot of that measured in, in housing and the difficulties young people are finding to get on the, on the housing ladder or to get any housing at all other than with their, with their parents. So, for example, the share of 25 to 34-year-olds who own their own home in the US is six percentage points lower than it was in 1990. In Germany, it's eight points lower. In France, it's three points lower. In Britain, it's 22 points lower. That's a huge drop in people who feel that they cannot get into a situation where where they can get their own home. And bear in mind, one of the big things of conservative leadership, I think the last five prime ministers have all promised that this kind of thing of people getting their first foot on the housing ladder is a big thing. And it's just not happening. Yeah. And I think the other thing that you brought to my attention to that article is, is the percentage of young people thinking that hard work is going to bring rewards is much lower in Britain. It's now 39% in Britain compared to 49% in Germany, 60% of the US. And that's interesting because actually, if you go back to 2012, this statistic on whether hard work would bring rewards actually had the UK quite high. I mean, the US has always been much higher, partly because mm. Americans are astonishingly optimistic, often against all the evidence on these kinds mm. of things. Um, but it has dropped dramatically in the UK. Actually, these things are dropping all around the world, which is one of the things that's um, fueling, I think, far-right populism. But it's more dramatic, the drops in the UK than elsewhere. The other factor that does come up is, is Brexit. Before the referendum, the share of 18 to 34-year-olds in Britain who said they strongly dislike the Conservative Party was at around 20%, and it's more than doubled since then. And I do think Brexit is a big part of that. Very good. Okay. So there we are on young people loathing the Tory party. Let's take a break. Thank you. Let's have a break on that subject. Thank you. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to The Rest is Politics with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. And Alistair, thank you at the beginning for calling out our Robert Sapolsky interview on leading, which just to remind people who haven't got this yet, we've got a separate stream called Leading, which has these amazing interviews, which I think almost one of the things we're most proud of, where we've had everybody from Bill Gates to Arnold Schwarzenegger to, in this case, Robert Sapolsky, who isn't as famous as either of those. He is an expert on the human brain and primates' brains and spent years sitting in the Kenyan desert studying baboons. What did you make of Sapolsky? I thought it was brilliant. And I'm in France at the moment. And Fiona and I were driving down through France listening to it. 
And, you know, I don't know about you, when I'm doing these interviews, I'm so sort of focused on doing the interviews and the next question, thinking what is being said, that when I get out of them, I sort of forget them. So it was almost like listening to it again. And Fiona had been saying to me, when I said, we're doing this guy called Robert Sapolsky, who's he? Oh, he's a famous scientist. What on earth are you talking to a famous scientist about that nobody's heard of kind of thing? But she said it was, and, and, and I agree, she said it, she thought it was one of the most interesting we've done. I got messages from people as Brendan Foster, the great athlete, sent me a message saying he thought this was one of our best. Svana Giesler, who is the founder of the Avatars, Mrs. <laughs> Abba, she sent me a message saying, God, this was amazing. I got, we got loads of good feedback. Well, I'm so pleased. Well, maybe yeah. we should um, occasionally, I mean, not all the time, but occasionally branch out and do more people that we think are kind of interesting, provocative thinkers as well as, as kind of leading politicians. Yeah, because I also thought the thing about, you know, we, you and I talk a lot privately about the whole kind of thing of mental health and, and politics. I thought it was very, very interesting on the psychology of politics. And, and I just love the idea of him sitting there looking at baboons hitting each other on the arse and relating that to, <laughs> to how Donald Trump behaves in public life. It's, uh, no, I really recommend people listen to Robert Sapolsky. It was great. And do check out the pictures of him as well. He, he's a very interesting looking guy too. Very good. Well, Pakistan. Pakistan, yeah. So quick introduction to Pakistan. Um, Pakistan, obviously, the country that formed after partition from India around an Islamic identity, ruled by a military government for many, many years from the 40s, but settled into basically a two-party system. It's got an electoral system like the UK, first past the post, and its two-party system pitted the PPP, which people will remember because it's connected with Benazir Bhutto, Mm -hmm. who was tragically assassinated, but will be very well known maybe to many international listeners. And the government that was in power most recently, the Muslim League, run by a man called Nawaz Sharif, who's prime minister and has been prime minister in the past. These two parties basically dominated Pakistani politics, and they had two very different electoral bases. So the Muslim League had a big base in the Punjab, and the PPP had a big base in Sindh, the area around Karachi until an incumbent emerged. An incumbent was Imran Khan. And Imran Khan set about from the 1990s onwards trying to launch a third party that was going to break through. And Imran Khan, as, as you've pointed out on the, on the podcast before, has been literally the most famous person in Pakistan since he was about 18 years old. <laughs> Great you know, Pakistani cricket champion, amazing sort of charismatic, very good looking figure, famous for his social life, and it's very difficult to think of a UK or US equivalent to somebody quite so central to the culture and famous. But even with all of that, of course, he really struggled to break through in a two-party system. So when he first ran, got almost no seats. Next time he ran, I think he got one seat. And I remember in the past when I used to spend a lot of time in Pakistan, so end of the 90s, early 2000s, everyone would just sort of laugh at the idea that Imran Khan could ever break through. And then he did. He yeah. broke through. He became prime minister took over the country and was then toppled essentially by a no confidence vote in parliament. So it's again, a similar system to the UK in that way. He was taken down and then he was charged with a number of criminal charges and is currently in prison. And in this situation, an election was held with Imran Khan in prison and an astonishing upset because Imran Khan's party got more seats than anyone else, and they would claim would have swept an incredible, overwhelming majority mm. if it had not been for amazing election interference. We should say, actually, you say Imran Khan's party. In fact, 
they all stood effectively as independents because a large section of the Pakistani population don't read or write. And symbols in elections become incredibly important. And the PTI, Imran Khan's party, the symbol, unsurprisingly, has been a cricket bat. And they were banned from using the cricket bat. All sorts of sort of attempts to, to stop them running, all sorts of accusations of pre-poll vote rigging. And yet, as you say, those candidates who support Imran Khan and his party, the PTI, they have won 93 seats. Nawaz Sharif has come second, and he has the backing. He's thought to have the backing of the army, which is incredibly powerful in uh, Pakistan. He's got 75 seats. And, and then the PPP, led by uh, Bhutto's son, Bilawal Bhutto Zardari, they came in third with 54 seats and are now sort of trying to play a bit of a kingmaker role. And although, as you say, the system is similar in many respects to the UK. One of the big differences is that they have 336 seats, 266 are decided by the voting that we've had, and then 70 are reserved, 60 for women, 10 for non-Muslims, and these are given out according to the votes that the party's got. But of course, in the what's going on now, the coalition sort of discussions, they are not being given to Imran Khan's party because these were all standing as independents. Because he's not formally a party. Yeah. You, you mentioned the military, and I think that's the big difference. We, we've talked a lot about Bangladesh recently, and we'll be talking about Indonesia. But of these three enormous Asian Muslim countries that are having elections this year, the big difference with Pakistan is the military. And it's one of these countries, Egypt's another example. Turkey was, until recently, another example, where the military is almost everything. The military has a huge share of the economy. So when you retire as a general, you get to take over some military company. They get incredible preferences in the economy. They're immune from strikes. And their position is bizarre. I remember talking to a Pakistani friend who went into the parliament and went to see the chief whip and discovered a, a full colonel sitting in the chief whip's office, basically <laughs> telling the whip what to do. Uh, again, Asma Jahangir, who's an amazing human rights leader in Pakistan, her daughter has a big TV program in which she criticizes the military, but an army major literally sits in the studio. And every time she's critical of the military, he presses a button and cuts her out. So if you watch the TV show, it's just sort of beep, and then she talks to another three seconds, beep, wow. again. So the military is the key. And the story of Imran Khan's rise to power is, of course, a bit more complicated because you could present him as this sort of plucky democratic outsider. But the reason he got into power is that in those days, the military was behind him. So the military were fed up uh, with the Muslim League, fed up with the PPP, and put their weight behind Imran Khan. And they vote rigged and stuffed in his favor last time around and got him into power. And he now says they got him out. And they now definitely did get him out. And why mm. did they get him out? They got him out because when he was in power and took a lot of their tips, um, he then turned against them and began railing against the military and tried to do what Erdogan successfully did in Turkey. But Imran Khan was less smart about it. Mm. Erdogan in Turkey spent nearly 10 years working out how to undermine the Turkish military. There was then a coup d'etat attempt against him, which he used very skillfully to shut down finally almost all the military opposition to him and create a secular state. And that's what I think Imran Khan was hoping to do. He was hoping to be the person who led Pakistan out of military rule. Mm. And when he was 
taken down by these corruption charges. There were attempts by his supporters to storm military checkpoints. They got into a military barracks. And all that, of course, has terrified the military even more. So they're even more determined to make sure that he remains Absolutely. in jail. This thing about the, the military is interesting. When when um, when I was with Tony Blair, and we you know, went to Pakistan a few times, and Musharraf was in charge, and of course, he military background. And yet, I can remember that you always had a feeling of the, the guys who were, as it were, current military. You really had a sense that even if, you know, those times where they say, let's just go and have a a chat head to head, just the two of us and Tony Blair and Musharraf would go and have a little chat. But you sort of had a feeling that the ones that were left outside the room, the military guys, actually were just as powerful, if not more powerful. And the head of the the army, Azim Munir, he and Imran Khan now are, I think it's fair to say, pretty sworn enemies. But what will really be worrying the army, because what happened has to happen now, they have a few weeks to be able to put a government together. Very hard to see how this is going to happen because the various coalitions that are possible. You could have Sharif's party, PMLN, joining with with Bhutto, but then they'd, they'd need a few other parties for that. You could have Bhutto joining up with the, the independents, but I think that then the question becomes, well, who's the prime minister? Who's going to actually take the, the lead in that? It's not at all obvious how this is going to pan out. So actually, it could be that at some point the army say, well, look, amid this chaos, we are actually going to have to impose ourselves. Yeah. And and I think the most likely scenario is that you end up with Nawaz Sharif taking over again with a PPP coalition because Imran Khan says he's not going into coalition with anyone else. So yeah. that bunch of independents won't go. Some of those independents are already being picked off. Some of them yeah. bribed, some of them literally put in jail until they declare for uh, the Muslim League. So he's losing some of his independence. And as you say, the army is now such sworn enemies of Imran Khan. They're not going to accept the idea of Imran Khan becoming the next prime minister or, or getting out of jail anytime soon. It's also a sign, I mean, we, we've talked a lot about the way in which in many countries, court cases, and this is true in the US too, are used against political opponents to rule them out of the presidency. And of course, the background story around that is that these countries have incredible challenges around corruption. I mean, corruption in Pakistan permeates deeply the Muslim League, permeates deeply the PPP. And although Imran Khan himself may not personally be corrupt, he prob probably isn't personally corrupt, boy, did he have a lot of corrupt ministers. And it certainly seems as though Bushra Bibi, who's his new wife, I mean, so you remember Imran Khan was married to, to Jemima mm -hmm. uh, Goldsmith, this sort of very prominent British um, I don't know how to describe Jemima. She's very interesting. I mean, she's very interested in foreign policy. She's very interested in many things. But she was famous initially for coming from a very wealthy British family. And he's now married to a woman who is his sort of spiritual guru. And she told him before the election that he wouldn't win the election unless he married her, which he did. <laughs> and she wears a full niqab. And he he's very superstitious. He believes a lot in soothsayers. She's associated with a very famous shrine in Pakistan. And, and the, the Sufi shrines are incredibly important in Pakistani culture. These are people who brought Islam to that part of India in the, in the early Middle Ages and who continue to have these kind of amazing magical powers. And Imran Khan's very into that. So he's been put in jail around allegations, some of which are very trivial compared to the kind of stuff that other Pakistani political leaders have been done for to do with you know, a bottle of olive oil is one of these cases, whereas mm. previous leaders have been in trouble for much, much bigger gifts. We're cars, taking a gift, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was, I think, it was a the the allegations particularly are that he went to Saudi and 
uh, Mohammed bin Salman gave him a series of gifts, which were then pawned instead of being properly declared. But essentially, what we have repeatedly in Pakistan is that your opponents get put in jail for corruption. And then if the army wants to bring you back again, miraculously, the judges then suddenly declare that there isn't enough evidence and you win on appeal and you lose all your cases. Sort of nice little bridge to the election in Indonesia, which is absolutely fascinating, is AI. Imran Khan has been speaking from jail as it were, by his supporters releasing these AI videos and, and sound of him speaking. So he's, in, he's, obvi- he's obviously not, he's not, he's in jail yeah. and he's not allowed to put stuff out. Just, just on that, because it's such a big theme that we keep talking about coming mm. into this year of elections. Um, also really interesting, there's huge support for Imran Khan in the UK and the US. You know, many people will, will have picked that up in the UK, talking to Pakistani friends. He's got a huge diaspora support and they invested very heavily in tech and AI. So one of the reasons they pulled off this miracle of effectively his party, even if they were independents, getting so many votes, is that you could ring up a hotline and this AI would tell you exactly who to vote for with which symbol in Imran Khan's voice in whichever seat you were in. Yeah, yeah. And the military seems to have massively underestimated this. And the military itself seems to be also splitting the stories that actually there were junior army officers stuffing the ballot boxes in favor of Imran Khan in Hyber Pakhtunwala, so in the Northwest frontier, while other parts of the army were stuffing ballots against him in Punjab and Sindh. And f- final thing, if I wanted to be Dr. Gloom for a second, I think there is a significant chance now of a revolutionary moment in Pakistan. I think the military has massively miscalculated. I think this has shown that the military split. There will be a lot of very angry people who felt that Imran Khan won a massive majority, was cheated of it by military interference. This new government will lack legitimacy. And I think this is probably one of the most risky moments Pakistan has faced in decades. Mm. And I guess the thing he has done, which no leader previously has even really tried to do, is to sort of break that sense of the military being the the most powerful institution in the country. Now, he's in jail, so you could say, well, they won. But from jail, he's managed to produce this pretty remarkable result. When we were talking about Pakistan a few weeks ago, we were all sort of pretty much pretty clear that Nawaz Sharif was going to be prime minister. Well, it's not totally clear right now. And it's, I think, the final thing there is that his time in office was pretty disastrous. Yeah. And the economy's a mess. Economy's a total mess. Yeah. You know, he's not an amazing pinup for liberal democracy. He had corrupt ministers. He was pretty authoritarian. He was shutting down the media and the press when the generals told him to. So one of the cliches about Pakistan is that if he'd completed his term in office, he probably wouldn't have been re-elected. But by toppling Mm. him, the military has guaranteed this amazing electoral turnout. Now, Indonesia, third largest democracy in the world, largest Muslim-majority nation, and they are going on Valentine's Day to elect new president, vice president, parliament, local bodies. And it's absolutely extraordinary. This is a country, you know it better than I do, but it's seven, It's made up of 17,000 islands over a space as large as the USA. 204 million people are going to vote. Young people make up more than half of them. The young is aged between 17 and 40. You can vote as 17. And the story, we talked a few weeks ago about how there's often a sort of a big shift against incumbents. Well, of course, in this case, the the incumbent, the two-term president known as Jokowi, Joko Widodo, he can't stand. The guy who has gone from being second, even third favorite, to now looking like he could even win 
on the first ballot, the first round, um, is this guy, Prabowo Subianto, who's the current defense minister. But he is somebody who's, I think this is his third attempt to go for the presidency. He's tried before to go for the vice presidency. And he's done something, you talk about a sort of smart tactic. We've talked before about the importance of running mates. Now, I always think running mates in America are overestimated. But in this case, what he's done is he's he's taken as his running mate the son of the outgoing president, who is very, very popular. The son is 36. You can't run for a vice president or president unless you're 40. So how has this happened? Well, his uncle happens to be running the court that decided, made this new rule that provided you already had a position of political power, you could run under 40. And the two of them together have actually moved the dial now sufficient for people to be saying that this guy looks like he's nailed on. Yeah. It's, again, really, really worrying. So Indonesia, I, I was a, a British diplomat in Indonesia for two years um, yeah. when Indonesia became a democracy. Just on that, the, so this place is 17,000 islands and you're working for the British government out there. How do you even begin to sort of manage the coverage of a place like that? How do you even find out what's going on? It's completely amazing. I mean, the we had a great ambassador who said to people like me, I was the second secretary of economic and so I had a colleague, second secretary of political, that he wanted us to get out to every province in the country. But it was an amazing challenge. And these places are incredibly different. So, you know, Bali is Hindu in culture. Other parts are Christian in culture. Mm. Other parts are animist. It includes southern Borneo. It includes enormous places like Sulawesi. Uh, it includes um, West Papua. Papua New Guinea. Yeah. So it, it was a creation after the collapse of the Dutch East Indies, this sort of colonial collection of islands. Sukarno, who was this charismatic independence leader, created this country. He essentially ruled the country till the early 60s when a general called Suharto took over. And Suharto then ruled the country till 1998. Which, he, was to, he had yeah. three decades worth. Unbelievable. And, and I, I came in as a diplomat and saw this country goes through the most incredible change. Firstly, there was a financial crisis that bankrupted 85% of the companies on the stock exchange, drove the economy from 7% growth to 17% contraction overnight. Mm. It's unbelievable. Then there were huge demonstrations in the streets. Suharto was toppled and democracy was born in Indonesia. And of course, this is the 90s when the US, the UK and allies were incredibly optimistic about all these countries we're talking about. You know, direction in which Indonesia might go, Bangladesh might go, even Pakistan. We were investing mm. a lot in supporting political parties and democracies and parliaments and all those kind of things. And Indonesia initially seemed very, very positive. So there were a series of presidents from different parties. One general came back in, but then Jokowi, who'd done a good technocratic job as a mayor and a governor, came in. And the signs of trouble began to come when Jacoby started talking about standing for a third term unconstitutionally. Mm -hmm. And now we have this very weird situation because Prabowo was the the villain, the sort of bogeyman in 98. He ran the special forces, didn't he? He also very conveniently married Suato's daughter, which is probably partly what led his, his rise up the military ranks. And then he got charged with all sorts of things to do with human rights and some students who were killed and trying to sort of quell the uprising against Suwata. Then he went off and live in exile. Yeah. Well, so, so the big moment, and I mean, there was, I remember the moment because I was sitting in the embassy and a lot of the senior staff was away. 
when these demonstrations of street turned into rumors that Suharto was about to step down in the cabinet mm. and that Prabowo was going to throw a coup d'etat. So there were really serious stories about Propoa moving military units around and trying to take over. Yeah, he was accused of stirring the whole thing up, wasn't he? Yeah. And he didn't succeed in taking over them when his father-in-law stepped down no. after 30 years the dictator. And then, as you say, he's been running for election ever since. And one of the problems is that the first couple of times he ran, you know, Democrats were able to say, this is a really bad man with a bad record. But of course, yeah. by the time you're running third, fourth time, it's not new news anymore. And he just says, well, that's an old, an old story. We've moved on from that. And he's also done this bizarre thing, but of course resonates with a lot of populists around the world, which is he's reinvented himself as a bad dad dancer. So he does all these <laughs> movies where he does this really embarrassing crap dancing. And it's hugely appealing to younger people yeah. and to, to working class voters. I mean, I made the point in the, uh, earlier on that you know there's a massive, massive number of young people. So they have no sort of personal sense of that history. He has reinvented himself as this kind of cuddly, avuncular, even grandfatherly figure. And of course, with the son of the outgoing president alongside him, who's actually very popular, the outgoing president remains very popular. His son reflects that. So they become quite a formidable team. And maybe we should put in the newsletter, there's some amazing footage that I was watching the other night on Al Jazeera of these rallies that they've been doing together in huge sports stadiums with sort of, you know, tens of thousands of people coming out. You know, that story of the human rights abuses, there was the whole thing about the abductions of these students. I think that 13 of them are still missing. Their parents are sort of never stopped protesting against this guy. Uh, he was also accused of serious human rights abuses in Timor-Leste when they were, Indonesians were, were occupying that. And this is, this is relatively recent. The big thing has been since he picked his running mate, he's now looking like it's entirely possible he could get over 50% in the first ballot, yeah. which would be an incredible achievement. And, yeah, I think he's very, very likely to win. It's very difficult to beat him now. And he's a really dangerous figure. I mean, mm. you know, this is the full-on populist authoritarian leader. This is a guy, Prabowo, has openly talked against direct elections. He's openly attacks the press. I mean, and, and, and the so, courts. And the courts. So if you are somebody who cares about Indonesian democracy, you will be voting against him. But he will portray those people as a sort of out of touch urban liberal elite. He has a mm. huge support amongst young people and poorer voters. And it's the same story again that we hear again and again, but this time in a country of 280 million people. And of course, the other sort of really strange element is that so Jacoby's son is standing alongside Prabowo. And meanwhile, Jacoby's own party, which he has been running for years and years and years, they have a different candidate who he is now, because his son is involved, essentially, he's not sort of come out and said anything that positive about Prabowo, even though he was his defense minister for four years. But essentially, it means that the very popular outgoing president is thought to be backing a party that is going to defeat his own party, who are now basically saying this guy's kind of completely let us down. Yeah. And Prabowo, I mean, we, we talk a lot about corruption in Pakistan. It's the big theme in Indonesia too. Prabowo is worth hundreds of millions of dollars. The Suharto family that he's obviously married into are worth billions. Mm. And he benefited enormously as defense minister from contracts. And, and then I think maybe to wrap up, I mean, you, you, you keep bringing us back to the way that social media and AI is changing the whole world. I mean, you, you can see this. There's a, a lot of these buzzer accounts, which are fake accounts promoting messages. There's a Ministry of Communications task force that's been set up supposedly to try to moderate 
these accounts, but of course it tends to come down on the side of Jokowi and his son and against the opposition. You can see these hashtags that suddenly sort of flash up in Indonesia. So there was one that was called Mahasiswa Bajarak, which means students on the run. And then there was one called Saya Bersama Jokowi, which means, you know, I'm with Jokowi on the other side that, that came up last year. But these are elections in these huge countries, you know, Pakistan, Indonesia, Pakistan, again, over 200 million people, Bangladesh, which are increasingly formed by what's happening on social media and through AI. And the, the other sort of big thing that, that I guess is worth sort of reflecting on as well is, is that China, of course, again, very, very relevant to this one because Indonesia and China were pretty much during most of the Cold War, they didn't get on at all. China has been a very important part of the economic development of Indonesia, but they, they say they want to stay very, very neutral between China and the US as the two great powers. But again, China is watching this very, 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 very closely. Um, no, it's, it's, it's a fascinating, fascinating country. And this, the story of this election has been, has been remarkable. And to see the, the trick he pulled in getting Jacoby's son to stand alongside him, that was, that was a game changer. Good. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Alistair. And uh, see you next time. See you soon. You were probably signing your own death warrant. Well, probably, but I'd moved into damage limitation mode. Who killed Liz Truss? I'm Robert Peston from The Rest Is Money, and we've been telling the story of the worst financial crisis faced by a British government for 50 years. The consequence of the catastrophic mini-budget. And now I'm talking to the Prime Minister. At that time of extreme chaos, Liz Truss. Over the course of two episodes, I ask her what she knew and when, how much responsibility she takes for the crisis, who she blames, and of course, who killed Liz Truss. Listen to The Rest is Money now, wherever you get your podcasts.